This is an ABC podcast. A few years ago, Deborah Laurie was flying a plane out of Coffs Harbour when the flight attendant said there was someone who wanted to visit the cockpit. And then a little six-year-old girl appeared wearing a homemade pilot's outfit, white shirt, tie and a hat and a handmade set of wings and a name badge. Deborah says she's not sure who was smiling more, the little girl or her. You see, it was partly because of Deborah and a long and painful battle that she fought with ANSET that this little girl could now not only dream of one day being an airline pilot, but actually do it. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Sarah. That must have been a nice moment. Oh, it was really delightful. And she, her mother wanted to have a photograph taken, but I was really keen to have a photograph on my camera taken with her and me. I was more keen to get her (laughs) photo, actually. Did they know it was a a woman flying the plane and that's why they came up? Yes, they did, yeah. Back when you were a little girl, what kind of child does your mum remember you as being? Uh, Quite stubborn. I remember when I was probably about seven or eight years old, I wanted a horse and I was told I couldn't have a horse for obvious reasons. We lived in uh, Melbourne suburbia. And um, so I decided that I would build my own out of wooden planks and boxes. <laughs> I wasn't very comfortable. Did you ride it about? Well, yeah, it didn't move around. I was in the one location, but I guess I pretended to go all sorts of different places with it. But yeah, that was my horse. Shows, shows great ingenuity, I think. What was mm. school like for you? Uh, school was pretty good. I was always a bit of a goody two-shoes and um, tried to do the best I, academically. Um, I was quite competitive, loved playing sport and did quite well. What sort of subjects really caught your interest as a Uh, teenager? Maths and science and physics, chemistry, those sort of subjects, which is partly due to my father who was started out as an industrial chemist and then he later became a patent attorney. Um, And he sort of was keen on those things. But when I went to secondary school, the school didn't have the facilities to teach physics and chemistry at the uh, senior level. So there was a group of us that went to the local boys' school down the road. So you were at an all-girls school? All-girls school, yeah. Were there nuns involved in this educational establishment? Yes, there were. (laughs) They were um, very progressive nuns because they were one of the first to wear their habit with their hair showing. And so they were quite progressive, actually. And it was good that they, uh, I guess, entertained the idea that that the girls could follow those subjects, even though they couldn't provide them. At least they could uh, negotiate with our brother school just up the road. And so we used to walk there in the morning uh, and take our classes there and then come back to our normal school. Must have been quite exciting for the boys at that boys' school too, I I, thought. I guess it was, you know, but... (laughs) You were focused on on the subject at hand. We were focused and in particularly, I remember one poor boy, his name was Felix, I hope he's not listening, but he wasn't all that smart at chemistry and so I used to relegate him to washing the test tubes because (laughs) (laughs) that was about all he could do. 
What about flying, Deborah? How did you first get interested in flying? Well, I I didn't really uh, know much about aviation or flying or anything like that, but my father had a midlife crisis, I guess, when I was about 14. So he decided to take flying lessons, as you do, uh, for a hobby. And I was very close to him, did a lot of things with him. And as a result of that, learnt or helped him to learn his checklists, uh, got involved in the theory side of things and that sort of thing that he was doing. And then he used to take me to the airport and I would wait in the car while he had a lesson and then the instructor allowed me to sit in the back seat. That's how I became interested, I guess. And my father said, well, I will give you two lessons for his 16th birthday. And the instructor was keen that I should do that. And I had those two lessons. And how did you take to it straight away? I hated it. I hated it. Why? I was I was a very awkward uh, 16-year-old or just turned 16 because I had the first one on my birthday. But I wore the wrong clothes. I wore a skirt and that was not really practical. Because what, you've got to move your, your feet to pedals you, or what? Well, that but also you have to... This seat adjustment is a bar that's down between your legs and I couldn't even work that. So the instructor got quite um, frustrated in the end and he just sort of like dived down there and yanked this thing forward and I just was just mortified. So the next lesson I wore jeans and I <laughs> was that was that was a lot better. I more or less did it in the beginning to prove to my father that I could do it. I had decided in my own mind that I would go solo, which is a major milestone in any aviation person's uh, career. I decided I would go solo. I'd just get through to that, prove that I could do it, prove I could fly an aeroplane on my own and move on. <laughs> and that didn't happen. Didn't happen no. that way. <laughs> How long did it take you to, till you could get to that point of flying well, solo? Well, um, that's actually a good question because normally someone would go solo in somewhere around an average of 15 hours. And that would usually be achieved uh, over a relatively short period of time, perhaps weeks or months at the most. But because I had to raise the money myself for the lessons, he only financed the first two. Um, it took me 11 months and exactly 11 hours. <laughs> How did you raise the money? Um, I washed cars, mowed lawns, <laughs> all that stuff. Whereas as you were doing those lessons to, to lead up to that solo flight, what was the most challenging part of, uh, of learning to fly? The most challenging part for me was having a lesson a month apart because you forget what you've learned. And the instructor used to say to me, oh, you've got to try and get here more often. Well, of course I couldn't. So I used to sit in the armchair at home and bit like the horse actually, but pretend where all the switches were and uh, pretend to start the aeroplane and go through the checklists and over and over and over, much to my mother's frustration. <laughs> but um, anyway, that's what I did for the whole year. And what was that first flight solo like? That was amazing because um, it happened just one month before I turned 17 and I couldn't drive. My mother had driven me to the airport and she was waiting in the car as she did and read her book. I think it was kind of uh, an escape for her. 
Uh, so she was waiting in the car and I did a one or what would they call circuits where you just do takeoff and landing one after another after another. And I'd done about three and then the instructor said, okay, well, that's, we'll make the next one, we'll stop on the next one. And I was felt a little bit disappointed because I thought, well, this lesson's uh, shorter than normal. And we stopped and he, with the engine still running, he opened the door, stepped out on the wing and then poked his head, all this, you know, wind blowing past his hair and everything. He poked his head in and he said, just go and do one on your own. And he shut the door and jumped off the wing. And I was absolutely terrified. But I sat there and I thought, just do everything, everything that I was had been told to do. And when I taxied out and took off, it was as if he was still there. I could hear him talking to me all the way around. So um, I did one circuit and landed. And it was absolutely the most amazing feeling. It was terrific. What about your dad, Deborah? Did he keep up with his flying? No, no, he didn't. He, <laughs> he that was kind of a passing phase. <laughs> so his midlife crisis led to your career, though. Correct. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. <laughs> Once you got your license, where did you start flying for fun? Uh, well, I flew at Moorabbin where I learnt. Um, what I used to do was once I could drive and had my independence, I used to go to work at the flying school on the weekend. So I would be the receptionist and look after the logbooks for the instructors and every time they wanted an aeroplane moved, I would volunteer and race outside and taxi it from one position to another. Um, all those sorts of things. Did some work in the hangar. And that was that was a twofold advantage for me because number one, I was at the airport mixing with people and just getting absorbed in aviation. And I used to get a discount off my lessons because of working as the receptionist. What about your flying safaris that you had with friends? What were they? Well, when uh, after I got my private license. By this time, I'm also at university because my father said, you can't rely on aviation as a career. You need to go and do uh, a degree and get uh, teaching qualifications, which I did. But while I was at university, I was keen on getting more hours up. So I had this plan that if I asked my friends there, I said, how about would you guys like to go on a safari around Australia? Why not? And all you have to do is we just all pitch in and pay for the fuel and the cost of the aircraft and away we go. Funnily enough, a couple of them thought it was a good idea. So off we set the first one. We went up through from Melbourne and then up through the centre of Australia, through Alice Springs, right up to Darwin. We got to Darwin three weeks before Cyclone Tracy. Uh, flew down the west coast over the Kimberleys and then all the way down to Perth and then across the Nullarbor back to to Melbourne. We made it all the way around. That's so much better than a friend who's got a car and says, oh, I can yeah. take you camping. Like, <laughs> what do you remember seeing, like that, that oh, whole new experience of your country? What do you remember seeing out the window on that trip? It was just amazing. And, and for example, uh, there used to be an old airstrip next, right next door to Ayers Rock, right beside it. It's not used anymore, but we could land on that. Uh, we camped in some very exciting places, just some very, very interesting experiences that we had. It must have been amazing for your confidence as a pilot, 
doing that kind of trip? I think I was probably blissfully naive and ignorant of the risks because <laughs> it was quite it was quite something. But uh, we managed to get uh, to do it. Um, of course, it was always careful flight planning and and all that sort of thing. But I think the best fun about it was was the people that uh, came along eventually got jobs to do. So one of them had to refuel, one of them had to load, all this kind of stuff. And that way they were involved and they really, really enjoyed it. Um, I, I've thought many a time I would like to repeat that trip uh, with some friends and do it, just do it all over again. You got some work flying out west too. Tell me about that. My father had uh, a very good friend who owned an opal shop in Melbourne and he got opals from shaft mining in Coober but also open cut mining north of Quilpie in Queensland. And the open cut opal mining is slightly different because they take a large boulder out of the ground which has an opal kernel inside and because he didn't want to cut this on site and run the risk of shattering the opal, he wanted to transport these boulders directly from this place north of Quilpie back to Melbourne and securely. So he thought that a light aircraft was the best way to do that and he thought that uh, his friend's daughter was probably <laughs> the best opportunity for that. So that's what I did. I did several trips up there. It, it was to an airfield that wasn't existing before. They actually bulldozed a dirt strip for the aircraft. Um, and what did those men, I assume they were mainly men working yeah. in that industry, what did they make of young Deborah arriving oh, in the pilot seat? They, it, that was very, very interesting because where this mine was, was in the middle of nowhere and there was one guy actually operating it, which is which is quite dangerous. I mean, he was operating the machinery and the Melbourne guys used to go backwards and forwards. And anyway, when I first appeared in this aircraft, um, he was absolutely disgusted that, uh, that a woman would be brought into this environment where clearly I didn't fit in. The following day, we had to do a reconnaissance flight. So we had to fly very low over the area because they wanted to check out where other people had mines. And so I flew the aircraft, but he had to navigate because it was all very low level and he knew such and such as fence or some other landmark. So he knew how to get back. So he relied on me and I relied on him. And then we had this developed this kind of mutual respect for one another. And the first time I went up there, they were, they were living in these god-awful conditions without any sheets on the beds or anything like that, as you can imagine. Um, the second time I went there, he put sheets on my bed. <laughs> no greater mark of respect. Absolutely. <laughs> When did the idea to fly commercially, to fly for an airline, when did that take hold of you and why? Well, I was still at Moorabbin the whole time. I did my instructor's rating, so I was teaching people to fly 
by that stage I, I was already through, I just got through uni, so I was teaching in high school as well. So I would go to the airport sometimes at night during the week or on the weekend, both days of the weekend, teaching people to fly. So I mixed in the aero club at the bar there and talking to the guys and everyone was talking about their career plans going to airlines and I thought, well, yeah, that's what I'm going to do as well. And they promptly told me that I was wasting my time, ahead of my time, uh, just be happy that you're, you've got what you're doing now. Uh, just be satisfied with that. And so ANSET was one of the main airlines in Australia mm. then. Had any woman ever applied to fly for ANSET? I think they had. I think there was one lady who actually she flew a, corp, a small corporate jet, which was way ahead of her time as well. I think she did apply, but by the time they processed or whether they processed her application or not, I'm not sure, but she reached the age of 27, which was their cutoff, cutoff age. So they wouldn't take on new pilots after the age of, Correct. of 27. So yeah. when you decided that you were going to apply, did mm. you get an interview? Not initially, no. Um, I just got the usual, uh, well, keep letting us know how you're going there and how many more hours you've got and uh, the standard, you know, put shoved to the side and eventually the problem will go away uh, because eventually I'll get to 27 as well. So problem solved. So uh, how did the first interview happen? That was a stroke of luck because the head of um, intake training was a Dutchman and I think he maybe thought a little bit differently, possibly, but he said, why don't we just interview her and at least, the, you know, I'll stop writing then, you know, the problem might be solved. So, so what was that interview like? Well, the first one was just simply checking their, my credentials, my logbook and licence, make sure that was all correct. Then I progressed to what they called the second interview, which was in, in with a panel of their senior captains around this great big wooden oval-shaped board table in a, in a boardroom um, with them all sitting around and asking me questions. What and, sort of things did they ask? Oh, they asked me, first of all, they were looking in my logbook to make sure there weren't any gaps or, or in my flying because they're very, they were very keen if you've given up flying and gone back to it, that's not good. Um, so they wanted to see consistency, which there was. They asked me a few questions about how many children I was going to have. They I, asked you that in the interview. Yeah. I had, I, of course, uh, I, I was never one that was going to have four or five kids or something. So I said, oh, you know, maybe one or two. But then I quickly backed that up with because I was I was um, about to get married, that I would be getting help with the children, that that wouldn't be stopping me or kids wouldn't be stopping me from flying. And that, that was that their sort of concern, that you'd, you'd do the training, get pregnant and uh, leave the airline? Or... Yeah, yeah. Or that I would uh, just race off and have a family and then, uh, you know, not want to go back to flying perhaps. I, I, I'm not quite sure what was in their heads, but... You know, one of them, like, because they they had never, uh, it was, if you if you could put yourself in their shoes, I guess, this was just totally strange to them. They they couldn't even understand the concept that of what I was trying to do. 
So you had this interview with all the the pilots in the boardroom. What Mm. happened next? I was sent to do a psychological appraisal and I know that that was uh, that was a good result from that as well. Uh, I had to do a medical and I already had done that. And So you're ticking every box. I'm ticking all these boxes and now I don't know, I didn't know back then, but now I know that the message went upstairs to Reg Ansett to say, okay, we've got our first female, just letting you know, and he put the uh, stop to that. That was a definite no from him. This will not go any further. So did you get an explicit rejection from the airline? Yes. By letter, you know, like, uh, sorry, you were unsuccessful. Uh, Best of luck with your career. End of story. And I was just absolutely disgusted. I was so angry, so angry. And I didn't did the usual, you know, dummy spit. And uh, Peter, who, who Peter Wardley, who I was engaged to at the time, he unscrewed the letter. Well, you thrown it. You'd screwed it up and I threw it, throw it away. I literally threw it over my shoulder, and he unscrewed it and he read it, and he said, "I think, I think we should do something about this." And he knew about the Equal Opportunity Act or the the new law in Victoria. And that was only a few very months new, old. A very, very, very new. And he knew about that. I didn't know that because I was always busy flying and doing other stuff. But he knew all about it. And he said, I think we should make an appointment to go and see the Commissioner for Equal Opportunity. I had a girlfriend at Moorabbin who was, who was also a pilot, but she she was a solicitor. And she said, she actually helped me in those days to to know the right path to go down to start this all happening. So I went along to meet the Commissioner for Equal Opportunity, who was Faye Miles at the time. And um, what did she think about? Well, she she was very interested, of course. She said that she was going to go away and make some inquiries and that she would get back to me. And she did that. She actually rang uh, Reg Ansett, had a conversation with him, and after that conversation apparently she was left in no doubt that um, the discrimination had probably occurred here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she invited me back into her office and told me this and said, are you prepared to fight because it could get rather nasty? And I said, well... Definitely. But I assumed nasty meant, you know, like it'd be about a week of argy-bargy and then it'd be all over. Um, And I'd prove my point and there you go. But that wasn't how it turned out. You and Peter were married just before the case was heard. What did Mm. you do on the morning of your wedding day, Deborah? Uh, (laughs) Well, on the morning of the wedding... um, because I always went in the annual Frida Thompson aerial derby race around Port Phillip Bay, I was not going to not do that. <laughs> wedding so, or no wedding. Wedding or no wedding. So I went down, uh, went to Moorabbin in the morning. I mean, I think back about this and I think, oh, my God. Anyway, went to Moorabbin in the morning, um, competed in the race. Did you win? I came second. 
yeah, so that was pretty good. But anyway, but I couldn't stay for the lunch and presentations and stuff like that. I had to kind of get going and it was hot. It was a very hot day in February and I raced home and I was just in meltdown, threw everything on. <laughs> Looked all right in the end. but <laughs> Made it there on time. <laughs> made, it, made it there on time. Yeah. So, so it, it, this case and it's this this Equal Opportunity Act was only a few months old, and this was the first time it was going to be tested to see yeah. how it, how it would stand up in court. Yeah. What arguments did Rajan said and his lawyers make against why you shouldn't be given uh, a job? Yeah, well, they, they changed their arguments throughout the case, but in the initial part uh, in front of the board, they claimed that strength was an issue. Uh, they claimed that just by virtue of being female and having times uh, once a month where you apparently go crazy and can't do anything, um, that was going to be an issue. This was explicit in, oh, in court, yeah, yeah, these yeah, reasons. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and that I would apparently have many children and uh, be a financial burden on the company. So... That was uh, that was the kind of the basic arguments. How did you counter? I mean, did you have to? How did you try and counter those arguments? The uh, strength one was counter counteracted with one of my barrister's very good friends owned an aircraft. He was also an airline pilot. He owned an aircraft which was similar, required similar physical inputs that the Fokker Friendship, which was the first aircraft you'd go on in ANSET, required. And he took me up for a flight and did put me through paces and was testified that I was actually capable of handling that aircraft. Therefore, strength wasn't an issue. The children argument was was shot out of the water with the notes that they'd made during the interview, the captains had made during the interview. So that blew that one out. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Deborah, when you describe these arguments that the lawyers were making on behalf of ANSET about why you couldn't be employed by the airline, it seems like beneath the specifics there was this underlying just chauvinism, distrust that a woman could do a high-pressure, high-demand job like being an airline pilot. How did you counter that deeper prejudice? Oh, a lot of, a lot of distrust. Not, not I should say, from the people that interviewed me, but the the company wanted to get this across to the public that this airline would be unsafe. Um, in fact, they said they felt that it would be unsafe if they had aircraft flying around. One in which the sexes in the cockpit were mixed was the terminology I think they used. And one of the guys on the board for the Equal Opportunity Board said, oh, would it be okay if they were all female then? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> which, 
which brought the house down. But um, yeah, so ANSET cited safety reasons. You know, which is such a trigger for people, isn't it? I yeah. mean, because that's everyone's concern with yeah, an airline is, yeah. is this going to be safe? Mm. Did you come face to face with Reg ANSET in court? Was he there no, ever? No, no. Did you feel at all that it was personal? Oh, totally. In what way? Um, because towards the end, it became character assassination. And um, I think when it eventually ended up in the High Court, uh, they the ANSET contingent, which was uh, about 10 silks there, the head of them said, well, we admit we've discriminated. That's not the, the issue anymore, that we did do that, and but we've done it because uh, we don't believe that she's a person that we want anyway and uh, all these all these other things that they tried to make up. So it was then they tried to character assassinate me and that's when I started getting angry, really angry. So the Equal Opportunity Board ruled in your favour and Correct. then ANSET appealed that decision. The matter went to the Supreme Court and then the High Court. Correct. So though you'd hope this would be a week of argy-bargy, in fact, <laughs> it's months and months. What effect was that having on you personally, uh, It was very draining because I was still working... By that time, I was now working full time at Moorabbin doing, I'd given away school teaching and was, because I had thought I need to be full time in this industry to be serious. Uh, so that was making that very difficult. I uh, had to do a lot of interviews with the press. I was in the papers all the time. I was on the TV all the time. I used to be in a supermarket. People would look in my trolley, you know, just, oh, yeah, you have a cat. Yes, I have a cat. Did you still have the support of your family? Yes. My mother always supported me. She was, and my sister and uh, my, young, my brothers were a little bit younger, but uh, my sister was very supportive. My mother was worried that... I would end up losing everything if if I continued. That was the only thing she was concerned about. Did you ever ask yourself, was it worth this? This was your desire to fly worth all of this? No, I didn't. I just thought I I am going. I'm keeping on going. I thought I've got nothing to lose and everything to lose if I don't keep going. My mother had a slightly different view to that and she could see what it was doing to me, you know, physically and mentally and things like that. But I didn't sort of take any notice of that. You say there was a lot of media attention. Mm. How did they treat you? On oh, the they were very good, very good. There was one reporter with Channel 7, uh, Pamela Graham, and she was dedicated to the case the whole time and she was very good, very supportive I remember one time doing an interview with her just after ANSET launched, uh, lodged yet another appeal and we were out standing by an aircraft at the airport, in, at Moorabbin Airport, and I was so angry and I said to Pam, can I just do something before you start filming? And she said, sure, you know. So I turned around and with multiple swear words coming out of my mouth, <laughs> And I got it all over and done with. And then I turned around and I said, right, ready. <laughs> what about the public? What was your sense about where public opinion lay in this divide? Uh, public generally uh, were quite supportive. I mean, obviously there was a, a contingent that weren't, but there was a group of women who started a fighting fund for me, which is, I guess, the 
older version of a GoFundMe thing or whatever you call it. So they started a fighting fund for my legal fees. There was a Willacy program that did an interview at Melbourne Airport because there was a, a definite boycotting of ANSET because a lot of secretaries who booked flights for their bosses wouldn't book them on ANSET. That sort of thing went on and, yeah, a lot of support, I have to say, from the press. The case finally came before the High Court in 1979, October. October. What do you remember about that first day in the High Court? It was in Sydney because the High Court wasn't in Canberra at that stage. We turned up the night before and I had a briefing with the barrister and we're all set to go and it was literally just him and me. There was no one else. And ANSET, as I said before, had about 10 silks of various degrees, QCs and whatnot, and there were several representatives from each of the states because, for example, Victoria, Tasmania, they were concerned that if this case was lost in the High Court, the equal opportunity laws wouldn't have any teeth. And the High Court battle was one of uh, state and federal law now because um, ANSET were claiming that I could be fired because I was part of the pilots' union and that was federally controlled. So therefore, I could be fired for any reason and they would rely on that rather than Victorian uh, state law. So we, we I turned up the first day into the court with all these people, more of them in the in the robes and wigs than I'd ever seen in my life. And my barrister was late. Oh my God. I know. What? And and a clock ticked ten over ten and then five past ten and still no sign of him. And you were just sitting there by I yourself. I was sitting there and I was just just didn't know what was gonna happen. And at 10 minutes past 10, he flew in the back door, literally dressing himself in the robe and the wig flying off the back as he ran down the aisle and apologised to everybody. And then it's then it started. I bet you didn't let him live that down in a hurry, Deborah. <laughs> waiting at the altar. I, mean, I know. <laughs> I've been, what do you call it? Um, stood. Stood up. Uh, he, I have to say, he was quite a magnificent, a magnificent man. He's still alive, actually. Very intelligent. And he was confident that we were going to win. I wasn't, but he was. What offer did you get before the the verdict of that High Court was even announced? Because the matter was before the High Court, the decision was pending, ANSERT was still bound by the orders from the Equal Opportunity Board, which were that I had to be employed on the next pilot intake. They were running very short of um, flight crew because they'd put off all their pilot intakes for a year. To try to keep you out? Yeah, because otherwise they would have to put me on one. So they decided, oh, we can't put this off anymore. We've got to start having intake. So we'll have one in November, which was a few days after the High Court. I was going to be on that intake, which I did. I turned up on the 5th of November. Uh, then you, the, the procedure is you do ground school for about six weeks, so you don't go anywhere near an aircraft. And ANSET's plan was that I would be 
allowed to do the ground school and do all the theory work, but that I was going to go nowhere near an aircraft. And by the time the High Court decision was handed down, which they were confident would be in their favour, problem would be solved. Unfortunately for ANSET, they didn't know this, but at that time, Reg ANSET was going through a few issues. He'd, he'd made a few share deals that went wrong and Holmes Accord from WA made a takeover bid, which wasn't successful. But then in early December, Rupert Murdoch and Peter Abels were standing in, waiting in the wings to make a move on ANSET, which they subsequently did and then took over the company. But what Reg ANSET didn't know was that I had taught Rupert Murdoch's brother-in-law how to fly. <laughs> so... <laughs> an in. <laughs> that was an in, yeah. So I heard whispers that I wasn't going to be allowed to get in an aircraft. And um, so I rang my good friend, John Calvert-Jones. Who you taught to fly. Who I taught to fly, who happened to be having a barbecue that day with Rupert. And he said, let me have a chat to Rupert. And um, to his credit, Rupert Murdoch issued a memo on the Tuesday that said uh, she is to be treated like everyone else equally. And on the Thursday, I was off flying, doing my flying training. How did the other pilots that you were training with react to you? They were great. They loved it. They loved having me in the classroom. They loved flying with me. A lot of camaraderie. And the instructors were really good as well. They were very, very supportive because they were the younger guys in the company because we're talking about the ANSET's uh, smallest aircraft, which was a F-27. And it was the older guys, the old crusty ones were on the Boeing. And um, yeah, well, <laughs> I didn't have to have anything to do with them till several years later. What were you wearing? What were you given to wear as a uniform uh, as the first female? I had pants that were tailored for women sort of, a male shirt, a tie, a horrible hat. <laughs> <laughs> I felt really, really, a bit like that first day when I learned to fly, I felt like so, yeah, a bit yucky, especially when I was surrounded by cabin crew, very glamorous girls in their fabulous uniforms. And I looked like some sort of frump, I think. It rained yeah. your brother's cupboard. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what was your first flight like when you finally got to be behind the controls on an ANSET plane? Talk yeah. me through that. Uh, okay, I had to go and meet my training captain in Alice Springs. And at that point, ANSET were now keen for me to cooperate with the press. So I'd done a press conference the day before. And then the following day, they said, oh, uh, because they had to fly me up on one of the jets up to Alice Springs and then meet the training captain and then we flew from there up to Darwin. But they um, asked me, they said, do you mind, like the press want to do an interview in Alice Springs before you go on your training flight? And I just thought of all the days when I just really need to be focused, concentrating, I'm nervous as hell, want to do everything right, okay, I'll do one last interview. And these things always take longer than you think. They always want one more photograph and uh, so on and so forth. And in the end, I was leaning up against the strut of the, the wheel strut and 
when I took my arm down, there my whole arm was covered in oil. <laughs> and I just thought, oh. <laughs> anyway, my training captain was lovely and he was quite bemused by all of this. And once we got going, you know, it was all fine. Being a pilot is such a high-pressure job to start with, Deborah. Did you feel under extra pressure, particularly in those early months and years with ANSET? Yes, I, I did feel under extra pressure because I felt that I was to remain completely devoid of emotional, any emotional uh, uh, things. Reaction. Reactions or would... any, anything like that. I had to do really well on all the tests and exams and things like that. So I just studied my bum off and, you know, worked so, so hard. And I felt that I was being watched all the time. They were just waiting, you know, because there were still, there were still guys that were trying to do Reg's wishes, you know, to just make, trip me up, get rid of me, uh, make me fail. And so I was always aware that 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 constant being watched and and um, yeah that that was quite hard. It dissipated over the years, um, but it's probably always been with me with me my whole life. Actually, I, my whole career, I'm really really conscious about studying everything to the nth degree and performing as well as possible, giving no grounds, no for grounds criticism, for criticism at all. yeah. What kind of reaction did you get from passengers in the early years? Uh, no one ever got off, right? No <laughs> one ever got off. There was one guy who nearly got off in, no, he didn't want to get off, but I went and gave him a lecture. But what that was happened? In, no, tell me that story. Oh, that one. <laughs> I was flying, it was just in KLM. So I was flying from Amsterdam to Bristol to Cardiff. And it's a triangle. And then we go Cardiff, Amsterdam. So some of the passengers stay on board in transit in Bristol and cabin uh, one of the cabin crew came up to the flight deck and she said there's a guy down the back and he's complaining about a female pilot and if you don't say something to him I will and I went well I'm in the mood to say something myself so I I got out of the flight deck went back to him he was sitting in 4a or 5a or something and I said I stood in the row in front of him put my hands on the elbows on the back of the seat and I said so, excuse me, um, I hear you might have a problem with a female pilot. <laughs> anyway, he said, uh, oh, um, you, you know, he was like, he was, he was little as well, right? <laughs> so he's even, he's even. And you're an imposing woman, I, Deborah. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm tall, yeah. So he's even sinking further into the seat and he had some mates travelling with him and they still burst out laughing. And um, I said to him, uh, I think it's about time you moved into the 90s. And uh, they all burst out laughing again. And he just had no comeback at this. So in the end, he said to me, um, you're Australian, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, my accent, yeah. I said, yes, I am. And he goes, I think I've flown with you before. Oh. And I went, oh, come in, spinner. So I said, did you get there last time? 
<laughs> there was more hilarity across the aisle. And uh, anyway, that was kind of the end of the conversation. And, and um, I thought afterwards, I was walking back to the cockpit and I thought, oh, my God, you know, I was so rude. He's probably going to report I think it sounds like you handled me. it perfectly. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was him in his place. But early on, he didn't get off either. Early on, uh, I remember sometimes passengers used to send their boarding passes up so I could autograph them. So that was nice. <laughs> you flew for ANSET until 1989 when the pilots dispute mm. developed and threw your career and career of hundreds of pilots into a tailspin. How tough mm. was that time? 89 was terrible. It It was a time where we were all united. We were... Uh, it was an ambit claim to try and catch up on wages that had been frozen. I mean, there's a lot of uh, stuff being written about that particular period in aviation history in Australia. The net result was that a few people went back on these contracts, which in the end paid more money than we, we would, were even asking for. Um, they employed overseas people, they brought in airline, even aircraft from overseas and the majority of Australian pilots either had to go offshore to resume their careers or some of them even gave the career away altogether. So I ended up being one of the ones that went overseas eventually to KLM. Uh, initially that was very, very difficult, however, because still back then, no women were employed and women pilots were employed in the Middle East or Asia or anywhere like that. The only places that were available for women were America, which you needed a green card, or some airlines in Europe. And in some of those countries, if you didn't speak the language, you were in strife as well. So fortunately, KLM was a very progressive airline, already had lots of women. They employed about 50 colleagues from Australia and uh, I was one of them and all their manuals and training is all in English. So It must have been different for you, Deborah, having other colleagues who were women, other pilots. What was that like? Yeah, because when I left ANSET there were only six of us out of, uh, I guess, 900 or 800 or so and I didn't really come across those colleagues all that often. But in KLM, yes, there were women. They'd had, they'd had their own kind of battle as well, some of them, but they were far more established and there was many more of them. Still not a lot, but uh, many more of them that I wasn't unusual. I was unusual because I was Australian, but not because I was female. What was the flying like out of Europe as opposed to Australia? Fantastic. I miss it. Uh, if I would go back in a heartbeat. What, tell me about what was what was fantastic about it. Just flying to different countries, uh, the weather challenges. What were the what are the big ones? It's the weather, it's snow. <laughs> What's it like flying in snow? Uh, it's very interesting. It it can create challenges of its own where. Uh, sometimes runways or even whole airports can be suddenly unavailable because of uh, snow snowstorms. Um, that must have been a completely new kind of flying. Yes, for you. yeah, 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 yeah. But it was great. It was so so interesting, and dealing with all the different air traffic control in each country, all the the languages and the and the 
ac- different accents and, and all the things that, the, that each country was doing a little bit differently was absolutely fascinating. Loved every minute of it. You also had a young son by this stage. Mm. Was being a mother as disastrous for your flying as all those lawyers had uh, suggested it would be? No, no, not at all. But I'm, I'm glad I was able to bring him up in Holland because I had fantastic au pairs over the years who helped me with him because by that time I was a single mother so I was doing raising him and holding down my career at the same time, but had some fabulous experiences just bringing him up and um, taking, taking him with me sometimes on some trips as he got a little bit older. Was he ever allowed to fly up front with you? Uh, no, 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 no. But not until he was older. He, he sat on the jump seat once when we went from Amsterdam to um, Abu Dhabi. And he he sat on the jump seat on for that trip. It must have raised your cool mum stakes being able to let him have that experience. Oh yeah. Well, he didn't think my job was all that interesting. I mean, he was tr- trying to pretend that oh yeah, I'm not interested in your job, mum. So he was busy eating his business class meal <laughs> while he was sitting on the jump seat. And just so happened we were flying over uh, Iraq and we flew 40 miles to the east, uh, sorry, east of Baghdad and you could see the lights very clearly and I said, Tom, have a look at that down there, that's Baghdad. Well, the knife and fork went down and he stared out the window and he said, you're kidding. I said, no, no, it's Baghdad, you know. And um, after that he said to me, he said, Mum, your job's pretty cool actually. And I said, yeah, it's not bad, is it? <laughs> so he actually got interested in flying from that trip. And is that what he's pursuing now? Yeah, he's he's flying with Ryanair, currently based in Edinburgh. Uh, he's a first officer on the 737. And a very proud mother went to visit him just pre-COVID and um, sat on his jump seat down to Barcelona and uh, Tom turned around to me and said, Mum, why do I feel like this is a check flight? <laughs> and I said, because it is. <laughs> no, he was, he was so hard, trying so hard to do everything as perfectly as possible. It was quite funny. So what eventually brought you back to Australia, Deborah? Uh, I came back in 2008 and that's when my son was in year 12. I had sent him to boarding school from year nine. I wanted him to actually experience education in Australia with better sporting facilities and stuff like that. So sent him back to boarding school and he was struggling in year 12. So I thought, you know, I've got to go home. Eventually I got a job as a safety investigation manager with Jetstar and came back and helped Tom through year 12. And then got back flying with uh, Jetstar. And what's happened with your flying since COVID? Well, with Jetstar, I was in Christchurch for a short period of time. And then I came back and got a place with Tiger and flew with Tiger for eight years up until COVID. And March of last year was the last time I flew an A320. It was a dramatic finish. It was very sad for everybody. And everyone says to me, okay, so you're retired now. And I go, well, no, no, I I had another two years, I thought, in me and I was really enjoying instructing. 
So I just said, no, I'm paused. You're paused. Paused. And what's the hardest bit for someone who's been flying since they're 16 to be paused? Uh, It's not hard if you believe there's something after it. It would be a different matter if I thought this was it. But I'm trying to convince myself that eventually I can do something that will help to rebuild the industry in this country. Deborah, you've got all these accolades, all these titles, all these firsts attached to your name. After all of that, what is it that you want to be remembered for? Um, several weeks ago, I was at a, a reunion of, of uh, pilots uh, commiserating about the COVID situation and something was said to me at, on that occasion and they said, we just want to thank you for helping us to be better pilots. And that's what I really want to be remembered for. Deborah, I am so honoured to meet you. It's a fantastic story. Thank you so much for sharing it on Conversations. Thanks, Sarah. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.